A small community in Mississippi was rocked by a horrible and brutal murder in late 2014. Despite tireless efforts by law enforcement, this case remains officially unsolved. Yet police and prosecutors are almost certain who committed this gruesome crime. If that's true, why has there yet to be justice for young Jessica Chambers? Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Killing Miss and Hidden. I'm actually very excited for this week's episode, despite how gruesome the crime is that we have to cover. I suppose I should introduce myself, right? In case this is your first journey with us. Um, my name is Brad. I'm a former criminal defense trial attorney. I spent almost 10 years being the bad guy or defending the bad guys, as I'm often accused of. Had some success, had some failures, met a lot of interesting people. I soon got out of that racket after, well, soon, after a decade, if that counts as soon, uh, to go work for my state's Supreme Court. So far as I know, I'm the only attorney employed by the court with any criminal defense experience, so I kind of serve as a de facto advisor on those sorts of things. And, you know, in case you ever come down to visit... Really enjoyed board games. We can, we can play a board game. All right. Now, today's case, as I kind of alluded to in the opening, is gruesome. Now, those of you that have listened before know I'm not going to turn this podcast into some version of Saw or Hostel. I don't like doing that. But there is one small part, and I'll give you a warning, there where you may want to tune out for about 10 seconds, depending on on how squeamish you get about these sorts of things. What makes me so excited for this case is this is a rare one where the police do a good job, the prosecution does a good job, and the defense does a good job. So there's lots of legal analysis at the end of this one. Hopefully, I think most of y'all like that. Otherwise, I'm probably not the best podcast to listen to. Uh, before we begin, a couple of shout outs. First, I got a message, a voice message, actually, from listener Lindsay, who pointed out in our episode last week about Maude Davies. You know, one of the big clues was the fact that her watch was stopped. Well, one thing I hadn't considered that Lindsay pointed out to me was back then, watches didn't have batteries. They were wind up. So, of course, her watch is going to stop at some point. That was a point I hadn't considered, and so let that factor into your internal analysis as you may. Other shout-out goes to listener Misty for recommending this episode. She gets a gold star for this one, I think. It's, again, kind of horrific, but anyway. Um, if you ever have a case you want us to cover, and I know a bunch of y'all have sent in cases that we haven't gotten to, but we will, feel free to email me. Or slide in that oh-so-sexy way you do into our DMs on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Was that gross? Did I just make things awkward? I'm sorry. This is, this is like prime example as to why my wife doesn't really let me out of the house very often. So, okay, this, this is going to be a longer episode. I already know it. I'll be hoarse. I'll be mispronouncing words by the end, so we may as well jump in and get started, eh? 
So today our travels take us to Cortland, Mississippi. This is a very small rural town that you would find in the South. Um, town is probably a generous way to describe it. Essentially, what we've got in Cortland is a Baptist church, Dollar General, a post office, and the M&M gas station. And remember that last one. For you geography nuts out there, like Nicole and Noel, Cortland is about 55 miles south of Memphis, Tennessee, about 25 miles west of the University of Mississippi, a.k.a. Oxford, a.k.a. The Grove. The population, at least from the 2010 census, and I didn't dig around for more up-to-date numbers because it's going to be close to the same way, but the, the population of this little slice of the South is just around 500 folks. The nearest city of any decent size to Cortland is Batesville, and it makes an appearance in this episode as well. It's just north of Cortland. So there's your geography. Now that you've got this mental map in your head, we can go on to the subject of this episode, who is Jessica Lane Chambers, a young, white, blonde, former cheerleader and softball player who was 19 at the time of this incident. Basically, if you think of your traditional kind of Southern blonde cheerleader that you are going to hire from a casting agent, you're probably thinking of Jessica if you watch American TV. She was uh, very well liked, both by her classmates, by people throughout the community. She had lots of friends. And she had a bright future ahead of her. She, in fact, she was when she graduated, graduated high school, she was preparing to leave for college when tragedy kind of struck. Her oldest brother was killed in a car accident. And this caused a pretty big shockwave through the family. And arguably, it may have hit Jessica the hardest. She kind of took a step back from life and wanted to reevaluate everything as she processed this trauma, which is a natural reaction, I believe. It didn't help, I think, that Jessica was kind of the baby of the family. And she kind of came from a big family. I think she had five or six brothers and sisters. And so she was kind of babied and protected by everybody else. So to have her oldest brother, her oldest sibling die so unexpectedly would be kind of like losing a father figure in a way. Now, speaking of her father, Jessica didn't grow up in this, you know, fairy tale type of world. Um, her parents divorced when she was three. Fortunately, they did get along. Um, and her dad spent a little bit of time in jail for manufacturing meth when she was younger. Now, fortunately, he got himself together in jail. And actually, what helped him out the most, in kind of a humorous twist, he was known to be a pretty good mechanic. So while he was in jail, he became a trustee. And as a trustee, the sheriff's department, you know, used them for odd jobs and stuff. But of course, they mainly let them into the shop to work on their cars. And he was so good and so efficient at doing this that when his sentence finished and he was about to not be a trustee anymore, 
they said, we, we don't really want you to leave. Can we offer you a full-time job here? <laughs> so um, I guess if you're having a hard time uh, finding work, maybe cooking meth and getting arrested and showing the sheriff's office what you can do may be a way to go. Now, after the death of her brother, Jessica became a bit of a rebel. Um, you know, she she started experimenting with drugs, unfortunately. She was hanging out with the quote-unquote wrong crowd. She started a relationship with this dude named Travis Stanford, who was 28 years old, so almost 10 years older than her. And he was a known ne'er-do-well. He had a criminal record. And in fact, when our story takes place, he's in jail for burglary. Jessica kind of spent her days um, working at a retail outlet, uh, a retail clothing outlet, and her free time was spent with her best friend, Keisha. Unbeknownst to her parents, she would, you know, the two of them would kind of drive around town and would hit up some folks who may or may not have access to the marijuana and they would enjoy smoking that. In the weeks leading up to this incident, the two had started hanging out with this fellow by the name of Quentin Tellis. And he was, you know, a very, very, very low-level and petty dealer. That's how they met, but they kind of became friends, and they would he would not only provide the product, but they he would also smoke it with them. So he gets paid to smoke weed. Yay, Quentin. So, all right. Talked about the place, talked about the people. Let's let's nail down the time here. We're talking December 6th of 2014. Around 8 o'clock that night, two men are driving down this rural road. The fact that it was paved was surprising, honestly, from what I could tell. And this was near Cortland. Very dark, very isolated. It's basically you're driving through woods and trees. But as they're driving, they notice this really odd light that's coming from ahead. And as they get closer and closer, the light gets bigger and bigger. And finally, they kind of come around a, a bend in the road, and they notice that the light is coming from a fire, a car fire to be exact. Now, they see it, and they're concerned that, you know, these flames could jump to the trees, cause something bigger. So they call 911. Their 911 call comes in at 8.07 p.m. Fire trucks arrive at 8.09 p.m. So go Cortland for having good emergency response there. And they see this fire and they notice that it's mostly contained to the vehicle. You know, it's not spreading and it's slowly dying out. So they're kind of taking their time, getting their stuff out and ready. And they know this is going to be a five minute job and they're done, essentially. One of the firefighters decides to kind of walk closer to the vehicle just to check things out. And as he was sauntering over, he noticed a strange shadow coming from behind the fire. And this made him kind of, you know, go back on his heels. And he crouched down and started trying to peer through the flames to see what was going on. And he noticed the shadow was moving real slowly. And it was it was walking like a zombie. It it was this humanoid shape with its arms out and it was moaning. I mean, this was like a scene from the walking dead. And he finally kind of walks around and gets to a position where he can see what he's looking at, where the fire is shining light on the shadow. 
And he notices it's this girl who is just horribly burned and she's struggling to walk and she's got her arms out and she's trying to talk. He rushes over with a blanket, you know, wraps her up, lays her down on the ground. And, you know, she's a mess. She's in horrible, horrible shape. Her hair's burned away. All of her clothes are burned away. And she, I mean, she's as burned as you can be and still be alive. Of course, the other firefighters see this. The EMT see this. Everybody just swarms this girl. And later, that first firefighter who kind of, you know, wrapped the blanket around her, he would testify in court that, you know, he was holding her hand and he was rubbing her sternum to try to keep her awake. And while they're laying there, um, well, first let's talk about this. You know, when someone suffers a burn, especially a severe burn, the skin kind of hardens and stretches in a way. Um, not outward, I guess it more collapses. Kind of, you know, as I've heard it described, it's like it turns into a tight leather binding around you so you know if you burn your wrist it's gonna feel like you've got a really tight leather bracelet on you know in addition to all the pain all that so when somebody's as severely burned as this girl was you know her torso she can't she can't really expand her chest her diaphragm is basically useless so just breathing on its own is difficult if you know not near impossible and you know they there, he's keeping her awake and he's, you know, he looks at her and he goes, you know, what's your name, sweetie? What's your name? And they learn that her name's Jessica. And of course, the next question they asked is, who did this to you? What happened? Tell us what happened. And she tried to respond, but she just couldn't. But she eventually choked out what sounded like a name. And everybody who was there is in agreement that she said this. And the name was either Eric or Derek, one of those two. Now, it's medical professionals. Everybody who is involved in this case agrees that for her to respond at all was just truly remarkable. Because, again, not only do you have the fact that her body's burned, she can't breathe and all, her face, her lips and her mouth are just severely, severely burned. So... It just had to be incredibly painful to move, you know, your her, her her lips and try to form a word. Now, obviously, this was Jessica Chambers. As soon as the EMTs kind of came to their senses, because they were shook by this. Most of them know Jessica. And this is, you know, she looks ghastly because she had second and third degree burns over 90% of her body. Most reports say 93% of her body. Uh, from what they introduced in court, really the only part of her body that didn't suffer at least a second degree burn was her rear end and a little bit of her lap. So they, you know, instantly once they come to their senses and get control of themselves, they just call in everybody. And a she's airlifted right from the screen to this burn unit up in Memphis that's considered one of the world's best burn units. Family, of course, gets contacted. And, you know, the the folk, the sheriff 
says, look, y'all just go straight to Memphis, okay? Don't don't fool around with the car fire or anything. We got that. Go to Memphis. So they go up there, and doctors basically tell the family that, you know, the injuries are so significant that really all they can do is try to control her pain. And sadly, Jessica doesn't even make it through the night. She dies early the next morning at, on December 7th of 2014. As that sad scene is playing out, law enforcement, of course, is all over the crime scene. They're picking up everything they can find. They're scattered out throughout these woods along this abandoned road. And all they can really find was Jessica's cell phone, which was just in horrible condition from the fire and then the resulting um, water used to put out the fire. And curiously, they found several pieces of her bra that looked to have been ripped apart that were kind of sprinkled in a confetti-like manner around the vehicle. Not that there was hundreds of pieces. There was two, three, four, something like that. Local law enforcement saw that, obviously, this was beyond their capability. You know, being a small town, they have limited resources. So they called in everyone they could think of to help with this case. Um, They called the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They sent the cell phone to a data recovery expert with the U.S. Marshals Service. And all those pieces of the bra they collected, they sent to state forensic experts. A few days later, a man just happened to be walking down the same road with his child, pushing her in the stroller, just out for a walk, you know. And he notices something odd in the ditch off the road. So he goes down there to inspect, and it's some car keys attached to a pink lanyard or ribbon or something like that. So, of course, he knows about what's happened to Jessica's car, He's concerned this may be evidence. He goes right back home and calls the police. They come and get the keys, and sure enough, they're Jessica's. These keys were found about a quarter mile down the road from the crime scene. That's about 400 meters. These keys were also sent off to the state forensic lab just to see if anything could be pulled off of them. When the investigation goes into full swing, it's the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, or the MBI, that kind of takes the lead in this case. Now, the first thing they tried to do was establish a timeline of Jessica's last day. And according to Lisa, Jessica's mother, Jessica woke up that morning and went out with some friends. So about two o'clock, she came home, took a nap. Around 425, Jessica got a phone call and she told her mom, hey, I'm going out for a little bit. I'm going to go up to the to the M&M store. At about 645 p.m., Jessica calls home, talks to her mom and says, hey, I'll be home soon. Do you need anything? You know, I love you and all that. And that's all her family knew. That was the last time anyone spoke to Jessica, 645 p.m. Police go to the M&M convenience store and gas station and speak to the clerk who just happened to be working the night that Jessica was killed. The It was the son of the owner of the gas station. His name was Ali, and he was extremely cooperative with police. You know, said, wait right here, goes, gets security footage from the night of the fire, gives it to him. Sadly, 
the community kind of turned against Ali. Uh, his family was from Yemen. So my guess was there's a little bit of racial tension. That's the nicest way I know to put it against what's probably the only Middle Eastern family in the community, you know. And it kind of got so bad, at least on social media, that the sheriff's office came out and had to publicly state that Ali is not a suspect and we have never considered him a suspect. And it's because of him that we have the surveillance footage and other evidence that's really helpful. So leave him alone. Police then next speak with Keisha since she had spent most or part of the day with Jessica. And she kind of tells them, yeah, they met up that morning. Jessica was driving and they went to go hunt down Quentin. Found them, bought some weed, and the three of them went kind of off into the woods to smoke. Keisha, you know, they ask her about this Derek or Eric name that Jessica said. And Keisha, she said, I don't, I don't know anybody by that name. There's nobody, you know, that we hung out with. By that name, at least. So police go and call, talk to Quentin. He's like everybody else. He's very cooperative. And he has some information. He says, you know what? I do know a Derek. And he said, it just so happens, this fella, his name's Derek Holmes. Jessica's been complaining about him because every time she sees him, he's bugging her, asking her out. And she's got no interest in him. And it was just consistent pestering and it just so happened that Derek turned out to be a registered sex offender so police get all excited and head over to visit Derek now Derek claims that yeah I've asked Jessica out a few times but that's all I've done I certainly ain't set a car fire so they say well you have an alibi you got someone that can tell us where you were around eight o'clock on that night and he said yeah I know exactly where I was I was at home rubbing my mom's feet very unique alibi, I will admit, but it's actually a legit one. Derek's mom had a diabetic condition, and she needed her feet rubbed to help with the circulation and whatnot. And on that night, it for whatever reason, there just happened to be several family members over at the house. And they say, you know, they were there long before eight, long after eight, and they said Derek was home the entire night. Never got a clear sense of how many folks were there, but I got the impression it was a sizable number. You know, enough that police didn't believe that they were covering for Derek. There was just too many of them. So at this point, law enforcement kind of hits a dead end. So they decide that the best thing to do, again, we're talking about rural area, not a huge population, right? So they go and they collect the names and phone numbers of everybody within the surrounding area who had a first or middle name of Eric or Derek or anything that sounded familiar to that. Like there was a Jarek they interviewed. Now there was one commonality among all the suspects that were interviewed by police that law enforcement didn't notice, but the community sure did notice all the suspects who were ever named in the media in any way, shape, or form, were black. And this started to cause a rift in the community. And for such a small community, this was actually a fairly big rift. You know, to be blunt, 
the white folks didn't see any problems while the black folks thought this was a textbook case of racial profiling. You know, it had to be a black man, according to all these white cops, is kind of where they were coming from. And I will add in that all the reporters who covered this case, or at least all the articles from reporters who covered this case that I could find were white. And so there's not much discussion on this racial divide, but you can see it's hinted to enough that I think this is a bigger deal than history is going to record. But I don't know that for a fact. That's just my impression. I, I will say I do think it was a pretty good idea just to go through essentially the phone book and pull out every Eric and Derek and interview them. It just didn't help bear any fruit here. So police are at another dead end. That's when finally they get some forensic information that helps. First comeback was information on Jessica's bra. When the forensic folks looked at it, they discovered that there was an accelerant used in the fire. And that accelerant was gasoline. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but the burn ward doctors had thought that Jessica had to have been covered in some sort of accelerant to suffer as much damage as she did. Because from their estimates, and I don't know how they make these estimates, it's, it's science voodoo to me, but according to their estimates, Jessica was probably in the fire for three to five minutes. Now, here's that one little gruesome detail I was going to add in, and I'll give you a chance to earmuff if you want to for the next 10 seconds starting now. The doctors had found that the accelerant had also been poured down Jessica's throat and upper nose, so she had horrible internal burns as well. And this was a nightmare, just a nightmare. Meanwhile, the U.S. Marshals pull a rabbit out of their hat and are able to recover a tremendous amount of information from Jessica's phone. And nobody was expecting this because it was in such bad shape. So police are excited. They get it. They send it over to the MBI. They go through it. And surprisingly, nowhere in Jessica's phone is there a mention of anybody named Eric or Derek. There's no contact under that name. There's no email addresses. There's, I mean, like the name didn't even show up like in a random text. That's how devoid of Eric and Derek's the cell phone was. So police kind of thought that maybe Jessica didn't really know an Eric or Derek, but there, there was something fishy. Someone had been pestering Jessica for sex regularly from a, a number that wasn't saved as a contact. So they look up the number, and guess who it is? It's coming from Quentin's phone. And they, police found it strange that if, you know, Jessica and Keisha and Quentin are hanging out, and if Quentin's her dealer, you think he would be saved as a contact in some fashion. This, of course, you know, police, when they interviewed Quentin, he denied ever making any advances towards Jessica. They were just buddies. She was a client of his, essentially, you know? And so police are concerned because here they've got texts from Quentin saying, hey, let's get busy. And he's saying he never did that. So they go and they talk to Quentin again. Once again, 
The dude's very polite, very cooperative. And he says, okay, yeah, you got me. I did approach Jessica for sex on multiple occasions. And we did have a sexual relationship. In fact, while they were on his property, Quentin pointed it over at an area kind of hidden behind a shed and some trees on his property. And he said that whenever they would have sex, Jessica would pull her car behind the shed there and they'd bump uglies. When he's describing the details, one thing that needs to be noted is, you know, Jessica would have to lean her seat all the way back for them to do the deed. And in inspecting the vehicle after the fire, that's exactly the position the driver's seat was in all the way back. But Quentin said, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you all about it. I was embarrassed. I know that kind of makes me look fishy. But look, I was in Louisiana. I was in Batesville. Excuse me. I was in Batesville at the time this happened. I was buying a prepaid debit card to mail to my girlfriend who lives in Louisiana because she wanted to come visit me that next weekend. And so according to Quentin's new statement, he would have left uh, Batesville about 20 minutes before the fire was reported, somewhere around 740, 745. And Batesville was about a 15-minute drive. Well, the, the scene of the fire to Batesville was about 15 minutes. So that's a very narrow window to get Jessica, get her to this place off of this rural road, killer, burner, all that stuff, you know. Quentin, like I said, very easygoing with the police. He allows them to search his property. They poke around, they go in his shed, and they find a five-gallon can of gasoline. But, you know, Quentin says, yeah, I mean, I've got gasoline. I got a lawnmower. It's gas-powered, so I keep it around for that. I've also got a dirt bike. I use it to fill that up. And, you know, frankly, it's just not uncommon in the South for folks to have gasoline in their sheds or garage. Quentin even let police take a look at his phone. He didn't object at all, and they couldn't find anything incriminating, but they did find something a little strange, specifically that Jessica was not listed as a contact in his phone. In fact, they can't find the text messages that were on Jessica's phone on Quentin's phone. And they asked him about this, and they said, now look, we we know you texted her. Why are there no texts on her? And he said, well, you know, when I heard she died, I deleted her as a contact. I deleted all of our emails and all of our text messages, mainly because I didn't want to get in trouble with my girlfriend. So... Police are frustrated. They don't really know where to go. And one of them has the bright idea of, well, let's look at Jessica's boyfriend, Travis. Yeah, he's in jail, but he's affiliated with a gang here in town. He's known to be very jealous. They had a very turbulent relationship. You know, maybe he heard that Jessica was sleeping with other guys while he's in jail and He ordered a hit or asked his gang buddies to send a message or what have you. So police go and talk to him, but nothing. I mean, they couldn't find any connection between Travis and the fire. Just as an FYI, 
Travis was actually killed in 2019, five years after Jessica died. Uh, he was shot to death. You know, that's that's the gang life right there. Even in a small little backwards community with a little teeny gang, it never ends well. Eventually, as forensic folks are working through Jessica's phone data, they're learning more and more. They also um, get a search warrant for Quentin's phone records, and they start comparing them. And, you know, Quentin sold the story about going to Batesville to buy this debit card for his girlfriend in Louisiana. Well, according to the cell phone tower data, Quentin's phone was still in Cortland when he said he was in Batesville. So police go back to Quentin, interview him a third time. And they ask him, they want to ask him about this discrepancy, but they can't find Quentin anywhere. Nobody's seen him recently. He ain't at his house. He hasn't been to his job. You know, even the folks at the M&M store, which is right across the street from Quentin's house, they haven't seen him. So they start looking around and it turns out Quentin's been arrested in Louisiana. So the Mississippi police pack up for a road trip, head down into Cajun country and try to give Quentin another chance to explain these little misunderstandings. Well, you see what had happened was Quentin had just misremembered. Yeah, he, he wasn't, you know, buying the debit card that night. He was actually spending that night with his buddy, Big Mike. You know, they were just messing around, driving through town. Uh, they did actually happen to see Jessica that night despite Quentin insisting earlier he had only seen her during the morning. Uh, they ran into her at a Taco Bell around 6 o'clock. She bought some weed off of them. And then Quentin and Big Mike went off. He's, you know, insistent. No, we were not alone together. We never spent any time together. Just ask my boy Big Mike. So they do. Police find Big Mike, and his reaction is to laugh. Big Mike says, nah, me and Quentin didn't spend any time together that day. In fact, I wasn't even in the state that day. Big Mike had gone to Nashville to watch the Tennessee Titans play football. And, of course, he had the ticket stubs and receipts from the traveling and all that. So police naturally believed him. So back to Louisiana, the investigators go. And Quentin again has a story for his bad memory. It, he wasn't with Big Mike after all. And yeah, he had spent some time with Jessica that evening. And it was more than just seeing her at the Taco Bell. They, they had hung out together, but they parted ways around 7 o'clock. And again, Quentin's saying, look, we didn't have sex. There was no relations. And the investigators nodded and, you know, took notes and all that. And then when he was done giving his statement, they kind of smiled and pulled out cell phone data. And they had stuck all of his cell phone pings for that night to the towers where it was coming from to show that for some reason, Quentin's cell phone and Jessica's cell phone were pinging off the same towers at the same time until at least 7.30 that night. And the map they make also show that they kind of 
the cell phones at least kind of hung out in the spot where Quentin said that he and Jessica would have sex. So what was up with this? You know, explain this to us, Quentin. And at that point, the calm and polite Quentin disappeared. He becomes outraged. He demands the police leave him alone. Stop talking to me. I mean, he just becomes like this ball of fire. And so they do. They take all their evidence to the prosecutor, and he says, yeah, I think we got enough here. So while Quentin's going into his Hulk rage, the prosecutors managed to get an indictment against Quentin for Jessica's murder. And this causes the racial divide to grow a little deeper in the community. So we are going to move forward to 2017 because this is when the trial begins. Quentin's family all chipped in and they were able to hire a very good defense attorney from the local area to defend him against this murder charge that would keep him in jail for the rest of his life. One thing we need to understand from the get-go, the prosecution's case is built completely on circumstantial evidence, okay? There's no direct evidence of Quentin ever being at the murder scene. There, there's, no, there's nothing they can point to to say, aha, we know you were there, we know you were Jessica, we know you set the fire, anything like that. So this is the story of how the trial plays out. A prosecutor's opening statement is about as fiery and as emotional as it could be. The prosecutor describes Jessica's injuries and death in as gruesome and as graphic detail as he possibly could. Then he rolls into, look, we've got all this technical evidence that's going to show that Quentin and Jessica were together until she died. Yeah, there's not a person that can say this, but we got our cell phones. And our cell phones know everything we do, and the cell phones are going to be our eyewitness here. And they end their closing by addressing the biggest elephant that will be in the courtroom during this trial. Jessica namings Eric or Derek, that confession. And the prosecution's basically acknowledging a big flaw in their case, but saying, here's why that's not as important as you want to think it is. In contrast, the defense stands up, is very calm, very cool, very collected, and the bulk of openings for the defense is we're going to just point the biggest, brightest spotlight at the Eric Derek statement. That's our defense. So the prosecution starts off, they call Jessica's best friend Keisha as their first witness. She tells a story about Jessica being scared of Quentin. There was an encounter a few days before Jessica's death where after buying drugs from him, Quentin insisted on getting a hug from Jessica. And it was one of those hugs that lasted too long. And it was clear Jessica was very uncomfortable with it. And she knew that Quentin just hounded her for sex. And they were able to introduce text messages between the two where for four straight days before Jessica's death, Quentin's texting her asking for sex. On cross-examination, however, Keisha said, you know, hey, the day we saw Quentin, the day that Jessica died, everything was cool. There was no animosity. There was no noticeable fear. 
they hung out voluntarily. I mean, Jessica invited Quentin along and there was nothing unusual, nothing suspect. Then the prosecution calls every single one of the firefighters and EMTs that were at the scene to testify one by one. And it starts off with the firefighter who first saw Jessica that put the blanket around him. And his testimony is such that it moved the courtroom to tears because he's just so upset about the scene that he was involved in. And in fact, there were reports that many of the firefighters and EMTs had to, you know, were given therapy, had to take some time off after the scene because it was just that bad. Now, you know, they ask this first firefighter and they ask every other one of these first responders, you know, did Jessica identify anybody and they all unanimously they all said it was eric or Derek. that's who she said hurt her there was one paramedic who was tending to jessica before the helicopter arrived who kind of asked a follow-up question and said did eric or Derek hurt you and he says jessica said no but Every official report that was submitted by every one of these people there all acknowledge that Jessica said the name Eric or Derek. And this was the moment where the defense shined the brightest and really laid into Jessica's identification, which we'll get into more so as we wrap up this trial. Prosecution X calls a DNA expert who testifies about Jessica's keys. She says, you know, there's a lot of DNA on here. There's at least four separate male profiles I can identify. I've received Quentin's DNA sample. Based on his sample compared to the keys, I cannot exclude him as being one of the four DNA profiles on the keys. But she admitted, too, that that doesn't mean she could say that Quentin was one of the four. She just couldn't exclude him. The cell phone data expert from the U.S. Marshal's office testified next. And this is arguably where the prosecution really shined. This expert, kind of bullet down to the nuts and bolts, was able to create this map that we kind of alluded to earlier, where he, I mean, he just, everywhere that Jessica's phone pinged a tower, he had on a map. Everywhere Quentin's phone pinged a tower, he had on this map. And it showed that their locations match. Further, that surveillance footage they got from the M&M store, again, Quentin lived across the street from there. One of the surveillance cameras points right at Quentin's house, across the M&M parking lot, but it shows Quentin's house in the background. And when you compared the cell phone data to the surveillance footage, this cell phone expert said it's a perfect match. I mean, when you when the cell phone data shows Jessica pulling into Quentin's house, you can see her pulling into his house on the surveillance video. You know, he draws this map of where they went, and it's it's essentially Jessica went 
M&M store, then across the street to Quentin's house. Then she pulled around behind that shed. Then they went together down the street to the rural road where her car was eventually found. The surveillance footage also showed that around 7.50 p.m., a car comes into Quentin's house, pulls up to the shed, somebody gets out, digs around to the shed, grabs something, pulls away. When the car arrives, it's coming from roughly the directions the fire's going to be set at, and when the car leaves Quentin's house, it heads in the direction of where the car is found on fire. But again, we don't get any uh, car tag number. We don't, we can't see the individual. You know, this is, it's a security camera. It's potato footage. But it does help hammer down that timeline that this uh, cell phone data expert has created. That's a pretty good case for the prosecution that's been laid out. But the defense was prepared. And when the cell phone data expert was cross-examined, he admitted, you know, really he could not say that his map was 100% accurate. And the problem was in rural Mississippi, there's just not a lot of cell phone towers. You know, if you're in downtown New York City, there's enough towers that they can nail exactly where you are as you travel for 24 hours throughout the city. Mississippi, you know, there's miles between towers. And so you may be pinging off a tower that's five miles away from you just because it's the closest one. And it's going to give the impression that you're much closer to that tower than you really are. And he also admits, again, the defense highlights that nobody can identify the car that shows up around 750 Nobody knows if Quentin's there, if it's Quentin's car, anything like that. So the bulk of the defense's case is essentially we're going to poke holes in the prosecution's theory. When the case closed, it was time for closing arguments. The prosecution argued, you know, look, we've introduced all this evidence. The only thing we haven't given you is a motive. Why would Quentin kill Jessica? Well, their theory was it was because for... Four straight days, he had been asking for sexual favors, and for four straight days, she'd been saying no. So, did he snap after being turned down the fifth time? We all saw what happened when the police kept questioning him. And on the fifth interview, he snapped and went bonkers. Did he do that with Jessica? And when you, you know, that theory coupled with the cell phone data... You know, Quentin and Jessica's cell phone being paired together that night as they bop around. You've got the video footage from the surveillance cameras showing Jessica showing up at his house, showing them leaving, showing someone coming back and getting something out of the shed where the gasoline was kept, and then leaving right before the fire starts. The prosecution said, you know, we got our man. This, it, it can't be anyone else but Quentin based upon this evidence. But the defense, the defense did an amazing job in showing, from their perspective at least, how thin the prosecution's case was. 
the iconic line from closing arguments was something to the effect of, and I, I wish I had a, a, a direct quote of it. I, I couldn't find a trial transcript. But essentially, the iconic line is his, Quentin's counsel getting up to the jury and saying, it is clear Eric should be here before you, the jury, to answer for his crime. It is a shame that the prosecution has not brought Eric to you. Reporters noted that while the prosecution's close, closing was, you know, very passionate and fiery, and it seemed like it was intended to really inflame the jury and get them mad about this crime, the defense responded by being very calm, very analytical, and asking very simple questions designed to show that there's some doubt here. You cannot say with 100% certainty that Quentin did it. By the time the case was given to the jury, no one in that courtroom had any solid feeling who was going to win that case. And the jury had it for about two days, during which everybody's wringing their hands. Nobody can work. You know, it's just time is frozen for everybody who has a dog in this fight, right? So the jury tells the judge, we've got a verdict. And so everybody rushes back into the courtroom. The jury's let in and the judge, you know, asks the foreman, the jury says, have y'all reached a verdict? And the foreman says, yes. The judge then asks, was the verdict unanimous? Foreman says, yes. And the judge says, please hand your verdict to the court clerk. Well, as the clerk's taking the verdict from the foreman, one of the jurors spontaneously speaks up and says, I didn't vote that way. And the judge says, all right, all right, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on. And he said, sir, will you please re repeat yourself? And the juror said, I don't think he's innocent. That's not the verdict I voted for. And the court, of course, you've got the murmurs going through the courtroom and all that. And the judge, you know, kind of keeps us going. He says, okay, as a reminder under Mississippi law to find Quentin guilty or to find him not guilty, it has to be a unanimous verdict. All 12 of you have to vote the same way. So if you would please go back to the jury room and continue your deliberations. Now, this is a very, very rare occurrence, all right? I mean, because how do you screw up that instruction? You know, everybody's got to vote the same way. We kind of, at least in the United States, we kind of know that implicitly from watching movies you know, like 12 Angry Men and things like that. But for whatever reason, this jury didn't get it. Um, and, you know, I only am aware of it ever happening one time in my days of practice. And it wasn't in one of my cases, but that's a story for another day. So the jury goes back and deliberates some more, but only for about an hour. And again, they tell the judge, look, okay, we've got it figured out. You know, we get this unanimous thing. We got a verdict. Hey, judge says it's unanimous. Yes, sir, it is. So Foreman hands the verdict to the clerk court who takes it to the judge. And it was read aloud to the courtroom. The jury had decided that Quentin was not guilty. 
Well, naturally, the prosecutor's immediate reaction is, you know, judge, we would respectfully ask that you poll the jurors to make sure that this is everybody's verdict based on what's happened. And the judge agrees to that. And this is a, you do this to get on the record that all 12 jurors do agree with this. So there's no question down the road about the verdict being bad. So the judge, you know, juror number one, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror number two, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror number three, is this your verdict? No. The third juror said she did not vote not guilty. She voted guilty. I've never heard of this happening twice in a case. I mean, I've never, when I say I've never heard, like I've never read about it. I've never heard rumors of it. I haven't seen a Reddit thread where somebody complained about this happening in a case. The jury just didn't get what their job was. And so in frustration, the judge says, it's clear that this jury is not going to be able to reach a unanimous verdict. So I'm going to declare a mistrial. Now, the day after the mistrial was declared, the prosecutor met with Jessica's family. And he said, from the beginning of the meeting, we are trying this case again. And that's a little surprising because traditionally, defendants do better on retrials than prosecutors do. And here it sounds like, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like the prosecutor's best case scenario was it was 10-2 for not guilty. You know, we had two people say they did not vote not guilty. So a strange decision, but the prosecution does a good job in presenting their case a second time. They do this by doubling down on the emotional aspect of this case. And essentially, they try the same case, but they bring in one extra witness of note. And that was the doctor who treated Jessica at the burn ward unit in Memphis. And it just so happened that the doctor Jessica was assigned to is this like world-renowned expert on burn injuries. And he gives seminars and talks all over the world about various aspects of healing burn injuries and what you can tell from burn injuries and all that stuff. And for him to talk about the injuries Jessica suffered, he required two very large blown up pictures of Jessica's body, which were so bad and so hard to look at that when the cover was pulled off of them. People in the gallery, people on the jury, even court staff started crying. It, it was just horrific. But the doctor, you know, this is what he does every day. So he's able to talk about it without any emotion. And he notes, you know, he talks about the pattern of the bruise, how it shows the splatters from the accelerant being poured on her and all that stuff. They also, you know, takes it another step and he says, now what's unusual is even though we've got these burns, right? The lap isn't burned very badly and there's bruising on the lap that would be consistent with sexual activity and possibly a sexual assault based on 
the degree and the amount of bruising. He also, of course, went into the effects of what it is like to be burned like this. And he noted that, look, someone in this condition, Jessica, she it would be impossible for her to speak, okay? I mean, she would not have the ability to take in a deep breath. The burn damage from the smoke and the heat and other stuff to her throat destroyed her vocal cords, okay? Now, I mean, he acknowledged that she'd be able to, like, inhale and exhale in a matter that folks maybe could base some sort of communication off of. But this doctor stated to the jury that he believed it would have been impossible for the first responders to get any information from Jessica beyond maybe a yes or no. And she certainly could not have articulated somebody's name. Again, the first responders testify how, you know, about the scene, but this time they focus a little bit more on emotionally how it impacted them. And because of that, how it was a little bit more chaotic of a scene than normal. Um, you know, some said they were almost in a state of panic because they knew Jessica and they see her in this awful condition. And again, this all seems to be by design to mitigate the written statements the first responders had made about hearing the name Eric or Derek from Jessica's lips. Meanwhile, defense sings the same song. All the written reports say Eric did it. Where is Eric? Why is he not in this courtroom? Case went on for five days before the jury got it. Obviously a new jury, perhaps one who understood the term unanimous. And after a few days of deliberating, they informed the judge that they had reached a dead end. They were just absolutely gridlocked. And it turned out that the votes were split equally. Six guilty, six for acquittal. And this was a massive gut punch to the prosecution. The DA insisted that Quentin would be brought up for trial a third time because he was going to make sure that Jessica got justice. But something kind of derailed this plan. See, the state of Louisiana asked if maybe they could talk to Quentin and then asked if maybe he could be extradited because they had a murder charge as they think Quentin was involved in. He happened to stumble into a bit of trouble involving a dead woman found in an apartment. I'm probably not going to get this name exactly right, but I'll be close, I hope. Ming Chang Xiao, who was from Taiwan and went by the name Mandy in the United States, was found dead in her apartment by her apartment manager in 2015. The place was an absolute disaster. It was obvious there was a massive struggle. Mandy had been stabbed more than 30 times. And so why are Louisiana police wanting to talk to this Mississippi native? Well, first of all, Quentin obviously goes to Louisiana periodically because he's got a girlfriend down there. And the Louisiana investigators did a really good job and found a piece of evidence that, you know, 90% of us, me included, would probably write off as just random trash, essentially. It was a pharmacy receipt. And 
they found the pharmacy receipt to be important because they knew the pharmacy had a security camera on there. And the date on the receipt was the day it was believed that Mandy had been killed or the day before. She had been in the apartment for a while. It was one of those situations where neighbors were complaining about an odd smell, and that's when Mandy was found by the manager. So they didn't know exactly what day, but this looked close. So they get the security footage from the pharmacy, and sure enough, the camera shows Mandy walking into the pharmacy alone. There's apparently no cameras inside the pharmacy. It's just exterior cameras. So a few minutes later, you see her walking out. She goes to her car, and it's obvious she's talking to someone in the car. All the security footage can show is that it's a black male, but no other details can really be made out. And, well, that's not true. There's one detail that can be made out. Mandy gives her pharmacy, her prescription, her, the pills she got, to this black male. And when they checked the prescription, it was some sort of painkiller that was, you know, commonly sold on the streets illegally. So they're investigating, and all they know is this, a random black guy was in Mandy's car when she got the prescription filled, you know, the day of or the day before she died. When out of nowhere, they get a phone call. This guy says, hey, I know who killed that lady from Taiwan. Well, this piqued law enforcement's interest, shall we say. And they invited this nice young chap down for a little chat. And he said, look, I have a buddy. He told me that he killed her. In fact, he said he tortured her to get her ATM pin so he could empty out her accounts. And the buddy's name was Quentin Tillis. Police looked at Mandy's financial records and noticed that, yeah, she had somehow been spending money after she died. So they go to the ATMs that were hit. And, of course, every one of them has a camera. They pull the footage from every one of them, and in every piece of footage they look at, they see Quentin staring him in the face. Interestingly, there's no physical evidence connecting Quentin to the crime scene in Louisiana. So this is two murders that Quentin's kind of in the orbit of and is deeply connected to the victim in a not-so-positive way, but we can't find a fingerprint, can't find a hair, blood stains. Of DNA samples. You know, Quentin may not have been a criminal mastermind, but he seemed to have some talent for leaving a crime scene pretty clean. Louisiana quickly went and, based on all this evidence, was able to get an indictment and preparing to prosecute Quentin for his murders. Now, the agreement for Quentin to be extradited, extradited to Louisiana was that Mississippi's got to prosecute him first. They called dibs, which we all know is legally binding. So after getting the indictment and all that, they send Quentin back to Louisiana, sends Quentin back to Mississippi. 
Unfortunately, before Mississippi started a third trial, you have what happens in so many cases that drag on too long. Witnesses move away. First responders take a job somewhere else. Some folks die. Others just start losing their specific recollections of that night. It's common. We lose our memories with the passage of time. You know, we forget about you now how, how many folks out there can tell us what you did on a typical Friday when you were in sixth grade, which don't remember. Well, you know, at this point, we're over five years from when these people had been to the scene of the fire and all that stuff. And yes, it was a gruesome scene. It's something that would stick with you, but you're still going to start forgetting stuff. And so Mississippi eventually, you know, said, okay, we'll release our dibs and sent Quentin back to Louisiana so they could have a crack at putting Quentin in the slammer. As of this recording, Louisiana has yet to take Quentin to trial. He was scheduled to have trial at the beginning of January of this year, but it got postponed, and I couldn't find a court date that was actually set for when he's truly going to be tried. So that's the case. That's the story. And oh, mama, do we have so much to talk about on the legal side of this case. I love it. I mean, I shouldn't say that when it's such a horrific crime, but let me just again begin by singing the praises of the defense attorney in this case. Prosecution did a really good job. Police did a really good job, but the defense nailed it. A common problem I've noticed from my career with prosecutors is they love to overtry cases. It's like they don't just want to win. They want to demolish the defendant which creates opportunities for overstating the evidence, misstating the evidence, or just making mistakes in general. And when you make mistakes, that's when a good defense attorney compounds. Or it leads to, you know, procedural violations or even constitutional violations, which prosecution wins the case, it goes up on appeal, it gets reversed, and you have to start all over. The prosecution here clearly recognized the problem they had in Jessica allegedly stating to first responders that her killer was Derek or Eric. It was very smart of the prosecutors to acknowledge this problem early on and to do their best to defuse it. But in my opinion, again, kind of Monday money morning quarterbacking this, they really screwed up by calling too many first responder witnesses. They did not need six or eight people to testify about what was seen the night of the fire. That created a huge opening for the defense. I mean, Quentin's counsel made sure the jury knew that the prosecution was calling all of these witnesses to drive home the point that Jessica identified the killer. Now, I don't think that's really why the prosecution called these witnesses. I think they wanted to make, they wanted to drive up the emotions. They wanted to make everybody angry and vengeful, you know, out for blood, an eye for an eye here. But even if that's how it started off, that's not how it was left in the minds of the jury, in my opinion, once defense counsel got done with each witness. The jury was hearing over and over and 
over and over that Jessica had named her killer. That was Eric or Derek. The prosecution had hoped the hearing all these gruesome details would kind of shock the jury. But, you know, think about it in real life. If you watch a scary movie over and over and over, no matter how gory it is, the longer it goes on and the more bad things you see, the more kind of numb you become to it. You know, you kind of, you're able to adapt to this, what you're seeing, to the story you're being told. And so hearing it the first, from the first witness was probably horrific for the jury members. Hearing it from the fifth witness was probably becoming, it didn't have that same impact. But through this all, the defense attorney is saying, who did this? Who did she say did this? Eric or Derek? And so you have this massive contrast from the, the jury's point of view, in my opinion. You've got the fiery, you know, almost like the Southern Baptist preacher on the prosecution talking about what a horrible situation this was. And he's right. I'm not, of course, quarreling with that. This is a horrific case. And then on the other side, you've got this, the defense attorney who's saying, we just want to know what's going on here. And who is Eric? Who is Derek? And pounding that into the jury's head over and over and over. It also, my experience is you see juries make up their mind pretty early on in a case. So those first few witnesses are pretty crucial. And if the prosecution is starting off on this emotional roller coaster ride, right? And you've got the defense just constantly saying, God, this is horrible. But where's Quentin fit in when somebody named Eric was the one who did it? That could easily lock in a decision to the jury's mind and start to discount all the other evidence that they're introduced with later on. Then we have all the technical evidence. Relying on anything complicated to prove a case before a jury is really tricky. And here you've got the cell phone data expert going on and on about this map he built and how everybody traveled and all that. But before he can testify to any of that, he's got to lay foundations for his evidence, okay? Essentially, like, why are these individual pieces of data so important? Why can they be trusted? Have they been used in other courts? Do other scientists and other tech experts find it to be reliable? Why are you the right person to be telling us about this? You know, what's your credentials? So the testimony starts off very dry. And honestly, once you bore or juror, they stop listening, from my experience. I mean, we've all been on a boring school lecture of some sort, right? How long can you listen to somebody drone on and on about I don't know, growing peanuts in a botany class. I don't know about y'all, but we've been going through a lot of training at work recently, and I, I tune out a lot more quickly than I would ever admit to my boss because it's just so boring. <laughs> and that's, there's, it's very hard to use information like this in a criminal trial because it's so hard to keep the jury's attention. And Again, the defense took the smart approach of cutting apart the expert's testimony 
by asking very simple questions, like third grade level questions. You know, so I can imagine it would go something like, so this data can show you exactly where someone is? Well, no, it can show me where their phone is. Oh, okay, so then you can tell us exactly where their phones were then. Well, no, I, I, it's more of a close approximation. Well, well, how close? Like 10 feet, 100 feet? Well, I can't really even say that because it depends on the number of towers in the area. And in this part of Mississippi, there aren't many towers. Why are there more data points on your map for Jessica than for Quentin? That's probably because Jessica was using her phone more. Maybe Quentin was driving. So someone needs to be able to use their phone before it will ping off of a tower. Yes. And then you go on from there. And you're slowly kind of letting the expert cut apart his own testimony by pointing out the weak points of his statements. And another thing to consider, too, is that once one side hires an expert, I think it's human nature personally, they adopt this like team mentality. You know, hey, I work for the prosecution now. We're going to we're going to put this guy in jail or hey, I work for the defense. We're going to make sure this man goes free. And so when that happens, you have to be careful as an attorney not to let your experts start overstating things, you know, because they're going to want to kind of not. I'm not at all saying that they want to bend the truth or exaggerate intentionally. I just find that, you know, hey, I've been hired by these folks. I better give them something, you know. I think there's an unconscious desire to give them something that they want. That lets the other side further drive a wedge into their testimony and their credibility. And so, you know, once you've unraveled the expert testimony a little bit, then you can start hitting them with questions like, why did you make this map? Why, why do you have these lines showing movement? You know, you made this map and you made these lines showing movement knowing the limitations you just described to the jury, right? So you can't really say that this map is accurate. This is just kind of your best guess from what little data you have, right? So why, why when, you, when the prosecution was asking questions, why, why did you tell the jury that this is how it actually was? You know, aren't scientists usually a little hesitant to say something 100% occurred unless there's evidence showing that it 100% occurred that way? And that's how an expert loses credibility with a jury. And that's assuming the jury was paying attention to the expert's whole testimony. And what I'm describing here, this is not unique to criminal cases. It's not unique just to prosecutors. I mean, anytime you're, you have an expert that's going to testify, it's, it's tough getting them ready. It's, it's tough making them good witnesses because you, don't, you certainly don't want to influence their testimony as an attorney, but you do have to coach them into how to testify, you know? You stay away from certainties. <laughs> you know, it's something doesn't always happen this way. You know, it typically happens this way. You, Because otherwise, lawyers, even bad lawyers, are good enough to jump on those sorts of words and say, oh, so it's not possible for it to happen the other way. There's also an act when you deal with experts, there is 
I think the right way to describe it is there is a natural tendency for someone who is hired as an expert to act as an expert. And that can come across, depending on that person's personality, that can come across as rather off-putting and arrogant. And I have seen jurors almost jump up and down when you have a witness, an expert witness like that, that gets caught tripping over his own words. It Again, this is just my observations, my experiences from being in trials and watching trials. We kind of love to prove an expert wrong. I don't know why. I, I guess we, again, humble experts do awesome jobs. Not so humble, as, uh, humble experts, you know. You kind of start feeling this vibe from the jury that this guy thinks he's so smart. He may be trying to pull a fast one on us because he thinks we're all stupid. I don't know if I can trust him. And boy, as soon as you can give them something to hold on to, you know, that they will absolutely be brutal when it comes to discounting an expert's testimony. And that closing argument, man, I wish I had a copy of the trial transcript so bad. I mean, I would love to read word for word what the defense counsel said, because, again, the contrast. Oh, it just had to be so so powerful when you have this strong, fiery, you know, sermon coming down from the prosecutor about we can't have this in our community. And, you know, we've mapped out this as best we can. And Quentin's the only one that fits the evidence we've got. You got to put him in jail. It's the right thing to do. And then on the other side, you've got this calm defense attorney who essentially for her closing argument says, I agree with my colleague. I agree. This was an inhuman crime. It was brutal. It was monstrous. Someone needs to pay. Somebody needs to go to jail. But that someone is Eric. Why isn't Eric sitting here today? If the prosecution wants justice for Jessica so badly, and we certainly want justice for Jessica and her family, too. But why, why do we have Quentin here? Why don't we have Eric? Eric's the man that Jessica said did this. Why did they bring Quentin before you? And so on. And you can also speculate, you know, what was argued about regarding the cell phone data and all of that. And I think that's why we get the impression that 10 or 11 of the jurors were inclined to vote not guilty in the first trial. A lot less was reported about the second trial, unfortunately. So I don't know exactly what happened in that. But I was surprised to see the vote go from roughly 10-2 for acquittal to being totally tied 6-6. Again, like I said, a retrial usually favors the defendants. You know, civil trials, divorce trials child support trials, evictions, you know, car accidents, business dissolutions, employment issues, everything like that. You know, where the issue is either I want some money or I need you to do something. My my mentor they called those, you know, prize fights. You knew all the evidence that was coming in, everybody has already testified via deposition, we've done all this discovery. You're just kind of putting on a show for the jury as best you can with the materials you've been given. 
criminal trials, at least in Alabama, they're a barroom brawl. The defense has no obligation to turn over any evidence to the state. The state's got to turn over all their evidence to the to the defense. And even then, there's gamesmanship. You know, prosecutors will turn over the evidence, but maybe not give you a complete picture of it. And I'm not saying any of this is unethical. You don't know exactly what a witness is going to say when they get up on the stand. So they tend to give you just broad overviews of what they're going, you know, what somebody has to say. And then they let you go interview them if you want more information. So the prosecutor in the first trial is usually stuck bouncing around a little bit, not knowing what's coming. Can't be quite as set. But then again, they have the advantage of they've got all the resources of the state. They can bring in as many experts as they need to. When you're a defense counsel, you can bring in as many experts as your client can afford to pay. And, you know, experts cost thousands upon thousands of dollars. And most folks can barely afford an attorney, much less all of that. It's I, I don't I, I always enjoyed doing criminal work because of that. It it just felt a lot more like you were in the slug fest with the prosecution. They're throwing everything they can at you. You're throwing everything you can back at them. And once the trial's concluded, you've got all their all parties who have testified, their witness statements are forever preserved on that record. And if they ever misspeak, you can hammer them for it. And as you know, defense counsel, you don't have to present any evidence. You can literally build your entire defense upon poking holes in what the prosecution says happens, which I think is what happened here. And so that's why it's easier for the defense in the second trial to be ready because they've had more time to think about what these people are going to testify to. And again, the prosecu- they, you would have time then maybe to raise some money to get some experts or find some witnesses. Meanwhile, other witnesses go missing, like we talked about, things like that. So it's usually a mess. So there's prosecutions actually do a lot of credit for moving the vote from 10-2 to 6-6. I think it was that burn specialist testimony. I think that was probably so graphic and so gruesome that my what I could tell, I'm under the impression that he was one of the first witnesses. And so that gruesome display of the pictures and all that that he had may have been enough to lock in several members of the jury's vote at that point in time. And, and again, like I said throughout, I really do think the police and prosecution did a good job in this case. The police did a very thorough investigation. You know, the the specter of only non-whites being interviewed, that's concerning, but I also don't know how true that is from the media reports. I don't really feel comfortable speaking to that. Um, But, you know, they interviewed every Eric and Derek they could find. And if you're doing them all, I mean, you can't be held accountable for what race somebody is when you're picking everybody of that certain characteristic, right? I think the phone data collection was very, very, very key evidence. I think the prosecution did a good job and presenting it the best way possible under the circumstances. Because, I mean, the reality is when you're pinging off a a cell phone tower, they just know a radius that you're in. If you're pinging off two cell phone towers, they can start triangulating where you specifically are. 
the prosecution, especially when they tied the cell phone data to the surveillance footage, boy, I thought that was really genius because that shows, and what probably should have been harped on a little bit more, assuming the jury's ears were open, was, okay, don't believe, you know, all all, all this magical scientific cell phone data stuff, right? Just if you want to ignore it, ignore it. But there's something to be said when the cell phone says it's at this address at this time, and then you've got a security camera showing that the vehicle the person is in is at the same address at the same time. You know, personally, I am of the opinion that Quentin did commit this murder. I think he got, he and Jessica bumped uglies, did the nasty. I'm not going to express opinion whether it was willing or not, but I think during the process of having sex, something happened and he hurt her. I don't know if it was intentional, accidental, but I think as a result of her being hurt so badly, he panicked, he being Quentin, and decided he had to get rid of this body and, you know, did the gasoline like we talked about during the earmuffs portion. Uh, that was an odd approach to doing it, a very evil way of doing it. And, and to me, ha having looked at this evidence and having no dog in this fight, I, I just, I feel the evidence is fairly overwhelming against Quentin. I think the reason the jury couldn't reach the verdict, though, is because of that Eric Derrick issue. I think the first responders were kind of hell-bent on hearing a name when they were talking to Jessica. You've got a panic scene. You've got a lot going on. And if one of them thought they heard Eric or Derrick, then everybody's probably going to agree with that, saying they all heard it. They're probably not trained this way, but part of their life experience is when you go out on a call, everybody needs to have the same story. Otherwise, the following criminal or civil lawsuit is going to be a pain in the butt to deal with. And, you know, please, I, I'm not saying that to criticize anybody. You know, it, it's they're a team. They Their natural reaction is to have each other's backs. And that's a good thing. And, you know, if one of your buddies says, hey, she said Eric or Derek, I think you have his back. And, you know, you try to listen. It's like, yeah, I think I hear it, too. It's kind of like uh, whenever you see, you know, recordings of, uh, uh, you know, ghosts supposedly talking or what have you. If you're told what they're going to say and then you hear it, you hear that word. But if you don't hear the word and they play it. And then afterwards, they tell you what they hear. You're much more likely to make up your own mind in the second scenario than in the first. You know, you're, you're not uh, you, you haven't been tainted or predisposed to hear something. And, you know, unfortunately, that brotherhood, that loyalty. Lost this criminal case, in my opinion. If you only had one of the first responders testify, have that first guy that made the jury and everybody cry, have him testify. Have him say, you know, I heard Eric, Derek, that's why I wrote down. But don't have him married to that. And then certainly don't have six or eight more get up there and say the exact same thing and pound into the jury's head that it's got to be Eric or Derek. I mean, to me, that that's just where it lost. 
You know, now we have Quentin facing another murder charge in another jurisdiction. I think Mississippi made the correct choice in allowing Louisiana to ultimately move forward with their case first. It's fresher. Um, You've got a witness claiming Quentin was bragging about murdering Mandy. You've got her ATM card being used by Quentin. And, you know, this witness is saying that, well, Quentin told me he tortured the pin out of her. When that statement's made, nothing's been released to the media about her ATM card being missing or somebody going around to the ATMs and withdrawing money. And so that makes that witness's testimony a bit more credible because he's able to speak to something that he shouldn't know about, right? Unless he truly had accurate knowledge of what happened. So if Louisiana is able to move forward and get a conviction, I bet we see Mississippi try quitting again. Because they're going to want to get a final verdict for Jessica's family. And depending on how that case goes, they may be able to use Quentin's conviction in Louisiana against him, which would probably help seal the deal when it's all said and done in Mississippi. I tell you all what, if I taught a class on criminal trial advocacy, I would love to use this case as an example. There's so much of what a good advocate should do in here. There's also stuff that shouldn't be done, as we talked about. And there's, you know, some in here about how you can pivot evidence in, to your favor when it's introduced against you. So, yeah, as an attorney, like, I love this case. As a human being, though, God, these are awful facts. And I just, you know, I honestly tried to read as little of the facts as possible and focus more on the legal stuff because it's the idea of what happened to that poor girl is just heart wrenching. Um, and you know, as, as I've said in the past, I'm a former criminal defense attorney. I lean towards the defense side of things, but you know, whoever did this, they were just a soulless monster. Yeah. Personally, I think it was Quentin, as I've said, if it was whoever it was, there's no goodness in someone who can be this sick and twisted towards another person. As a lawyer, as I've said, his attorney's performance was splendid. As a person, I kind of hate that Quentin benefited from it, assuming he committed the crime. Of course, he's still considered innocent under the law, and he's entitled to that presumption and should be treated as innocent. But if you're asking me my opinion, I think the dude's guilty, and I think the evidence is pretty daggum compelling. So this has been a bit of an episode, huh? And I think most of y'all enjoy these long episodes based on the feedback I get. You know, I'm pretty malleable, so always feel free to share what you like and what you don't like about the show. I'll try to adjust as best I can. If you do love it, and you know in your heart that you have to help us grow and take over the world, please do three things for us. First, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Second, leave us an awesome five-star review. Lastly, share us with all your friends and family. It's the only way an independent con podcast like us can grow. Um, you know, we're not beholden to some corporate overlord who can throw us $30,000 to advertise, pay Apple podcasts to put us on their charts, pay reporters to write reviews about us. Whatever good news and good press we get is because of y'all. So thank y'all for supporting us. 
If you want more of KMH, make sure to follow us on all those social media things. You're going to find us either under KMH Podcast or KMH.podcast on stupid Instagram. We post updates and some random wackiness. We also have a private Facebook group. We'd love to have you join. You just have to answer three basic questions about the podcast to get in. The only reason we have those questions is to keep out spammers and other good for nothings. All right, well, we need to do our palate cleanser to make this an official episode, according to KMH rules. Sadly, I've decided to veto Mr. Eli's joke for this week. He likes to try to keep on theme with the episode, so he picked a fire-based joke, and that just doesn't feel appropriate, you know? So I've pulled in a backup joke as our palate cleanser. So here we go. Do you know what my favorite word is? Drool. It just just rolls off the tongue, you know? See, I, I can I can bring funnies too. Or at least groans. Alright, we'll wrap this puppy up. Thank you for joining in. Thank you for listening. It makes us so happy. As I said, please review, subscribe, and share. We love you all. Thank you again to listener Misty for the suggestion and listener Lindsay for correcting me. Y'all are true shining stars in our universe. When you aren't listening to Killing Miss and Hidden, please support other indie podcasts. As you know, there's been some drama going on based off of Audio Chuck and them getting caught copying a podcast. So please, you know, help out the little guys. Uh, finally, as always, please do something this week that makes you happy. You know, have cookies for breakfast. Have a night watching terrible reality TV. Dance naked to your favorite song. In the office. Whatever makes you happy. Life has enough crap for us to deal with. You need to smile. Okay. All right. I'll shut up. Everybody go be awesome and love each other. Right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.